Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to Explorers Guild, the fortnightly podcast telling you the stories of some of the biggest and best gaming franchises out there. Today, we're looking at the base story of Final Fantasy VII, one of the most beloved of the Final Fantasy series, an iconic game that has inspired many for over 20 years now. The Final Fantasy series offers a universe that keeps some consistency across each new installment, but for the most part, each story operates inside its own bubble, meaning that even though this is called Final Fantasy VII, it is in fact the first part of a story that has seen multiple spin-off games and even a film. Most recently, we've seen Final Fantasy VII Remake, which faithfully recreates much of the 1997 original game, but it does have some significant differences and only actually includes a small part of the whole original story. In this podcast, we'll be talking through the story as found in the original game. So if you've only played the remake, this will include spoilers to events that haven't quite happened yet. And this will be your only warning. So please back out now if you don't want to be spoiled. I also won't be going into too much depth about the characters and backstories that have been fleshed out in the later games of the series just to keep things concise. Much of the story is based around the fictional city of Midgar, a vibrant and bizarre place that is home to most of the protagonists and is the base for the antagonist, the Shinra Electric Power Company. The city looks a bit like a giant pie. It's huge and rounded and sliced into sectors. Each sector has a corresponding power reactor and each sector is split into two parts, the city and the undercity. For the affluent, home is known as the top of the plate, or the city, because Midgar is in fact a city suspended above the ground, the top steel plate suspended 300 metres high with the Shinra Electric Power Company headquarters as the centrepiece. Below these monstrous steel plates are the slums, the home for those who aren't lucky enough or affluent enough to be on the surface, and as you might expect, when you live life under a giant steel plate, you don't get to see that much sunlight. The slums have artificial light in the form of giant sun lamps on the plate's underside, but the caress of real sunlight can feel very far away. And that's not to say the slums are an entirely unpleasant place to live. They're full of eccentricity and people from all walks of life trying to get by, and a whole lot of wholesome community spirit. The top plate, by comparison, is largely metropolitan. There's motorways, skyscrapers, the sort of modern institutions you'd expect to see in a large city. But outside of this expanding circular feat of engineering, the land looks barren. Nothing grows around Midgar. And there's a good reason for this. The planet in this story holds many similarities to Earth. It sits in the solar system where the Earth would usually be, but it isn't Earth, it's Gaia, and it's suggested that the planet itself is a living organism. When any living thing on the planet dies, its lifeblood returns to the life stream, a flow of spirit energy that streams beneath the surface of the planet. It contains basically the essence of humanity, memories, emotions, and knowledge of the life forms within that they gathered during their lifetimes. And this energy heals the planet as well. If a part of the planet becomes damaged for whatever reason, the life stream will surge to fix it, similar to a white blood cell. There's also evidence that links the life stream to the concept of heaven and hell, where those of good hearts will return to the life stream and a shared consciousness to help further the planet. And those who are considered sinful don't get the same pleasure and remain alone in the afterlife. In areas where the life stream lays close to the surface, natural pools may occur. 
pools that are potent with potential. Potential that the Shinra Electric Company are very keen to harness. They call the pools of Lifestream Mako, and realized this Mako could be converted to other forms of energy. So they created reactors to siphon the Mako from below the surface of the planet and use the energy to construct Midgar, powering the city and bringing a new era of life sponsored by the bountiful natural energy of the planet. At least that's what they tell you. The reality is that Mako is not limitless. And as the barren lands around Midgar testify, using the live stream for anything other than what nature intended is bound to have disastrous results for the planet. Shinra are very aware of this and have worked very hard over the years to not only cement themselves as the only electric company any town might need, but also as the de facto government and security of Midgar in the process. And they've spent a long time influencing every aspect of political and social spheres to get to the mega corporation they are today. Shinra control everything and a successful propaganda campaign by them has the citizens of Midgar eating out of their hands, defending the usage of Mako and bowing down to their power. Part of the reason for their absolute dominance lies in the hands of their military division. In particular, their elite group of incredible trained fighters known as Soldier, all caps. Whenever something happens to disturb the corporate utopia in Midgar, Soldier are there to quietly deal with the problem, and a few of the more notable members of the force become celebrities in their own right. Kids grow up seeing Soldier and want to be revered like these heroes they hear saving the planet, and they're easily indoctrinated into Shinra's military service. Some make it all the way to the best of the best, first-class Soldier, and others are not so lucky. They're easily distinguished by their distinctive soldier uniforms and their usage of materia, as well as their strange green-blue eyes, the result of their mandated direct exposure to raw Mako, giving them powers beyond ordinary troops. Some of the pools of Mako close to the surface can erupt and form Mako Springs, and sometimes this pure life stream will crystallize and form a sphere of planet energy known as materia. Materia gives humans additional power, magic or enhancements if they know how to use it. Shinra are particularly interested in the synthesis of unnatural materia, something they fervently work towards with very little regard for the consequences. And that's not the only thing Shinra are interested in experimenting with in their quest for dominance. But first, we need to go back. 2,000 years before Midgar became reality, the Earth was inhabited by a group of people called the Setra, sharing most characteristics with other humans, but also being particularly in tune with the planet and living a nomadic life, never truly settling anywhere. This spiritual people cultivated life, working with the planet and looking after it for many years, all the while searching for a fabled promised land, a place they believed in their hearts and souls truly existed, but didn't get the chance to find. Some of the Setra abandoned their spiritual ways and settled, becoming the humans we see today on the planet. Others stayed their path and the earth prospered under the Setra's guidance until the calamity struck. From deep within space, an entity traveled and crash-landed in the north of the planet, gravely wounding it and resulting in a crater that can still be seen in the present. Under normal circumstances, the Zetra could band together and help heal their planet, but they didn't get the chance. For what crawled out from the wreckage was a being of intense malevolence and devastating ability who approached a nearby Setra camp, shape-shifted to match the Setra's form, and infected them with a virus made up of its own genetic material, mutating the defenseless Setra into hideous monsters, and then using this method, waged its war upon Gaia. Once the Setra understood what was happening, they tried to contain this invader, and eventually managed to band together to do so, but lost a significant amount of their population in the process. The humans who had hidden from this calamity, not any help whatsoever, 
ventured out once more. And with the number of Cetra on the planet dwindling, the humans spread and became dominant. The Cetra were eventually presumed extinct, and slowly, these ancients became embedded in folklore, their culture and spirituality forgotten as humanity moved on. The invader, on the other hand, lay in wait for the next two millennia, contained in the north crater from which they fell, contained safely and forgotten by humanity. Until Shinra. The idea of the Cetra's promised land was one of the few pieces of information about the ancients passed down the generations, and Shinra were particularly interested in learning more. Their research division came to the realization something was buried deep in the northern crater, and an excavation team was deployed, successfully locating the remains of the invader, and mistaking it for a Cetra. Professor Gast, who made this discovery, named this false Cetra Genova, and the Genova Project was born, a project of human experimentation, where cells from the calamity were taken and injected into humans with the intention of creating a human Cetra hybrid to lead Shinra to the Promised Land. Of course, being that Genova was not a Cetra, this didn't work. So Shinra turned their attention to the unintended effects of the cell application, realizing those who'd been treated with the cells of Genova made for excellent super soldiers. We'll come back to that. Professor Gast worked alongside his younger colleagues, Hojo and Lucretia, but his pursuit for wisdom was not intended to be for an end goal of power. He just wanted to know, to learn more about their world. When he found Genova, he also stumbled upon a real-life Cetra by the name of Ifalna, one of the last of her kind, and she's taken to Shinra for more research. Ifalna shares her knowledge with Gast, who treats her kindly, and as such, after experiments using Genova's cells have already begun, Gast realizes Shinra wants to experiment brutally on Ifalna, so he escapes Shinra and takes her with him. They fell in love, hidden away, and eventually gave birth to a daughter, hoping to remain concealed, living out a simple life while recording all the Cetra knowledge Ivana had. Meanwhile, Gast's position of head of Shinra's science research department has been left empty, and a race for the best results begins between the scientists in the department to fill the position by showing Shinra their experiments are producing the best results. Professor Hojo's depravity on his quest for knowledge and creation is unbound. Hojo is truly what would be considered an awful mad scientist, a, a bad guy who will stop at nothing to succeed in his experimentations, caring not one iota for ethics. Hojo and fellow scientist Lucretia eventually married and conceived a child of their own. Their dedication to the Genova Project and the idea of creating a super soldier of unrivaled ability persuading them to inject Genova cells into their unborn child, leading to the creation of what Hojo considered his greatest work yet. When the child is born, Lucretia isn't even able to see him, an emotional turmoil from the events of her past, which I might mention later, pushes her to take her own life. But the Genova cells are inside her too, and she finds she cannot die. So she takes a self-imposed exile deep within a cave where she remains encased in materia, alive, but not living. Hojo, on the other hand, is only concerned with his pursuit of science, and, and this child, named Sephiroth, propelled him to the position of head of Shinra's science research department, giving him more power than ever before and granting him oversight over the entirety of the Genova project. Word gets around that Gast is hidden somewhere in the north with the Cetra he liberated from Shinra. Hojo gathers a task force and travels up to reclaim their property, finding Gast, Ifana, and their daughter, Aerith. Without a care for his former boss, Hojo murders Gast in front of his wife and child and steals them away to Midgar for experimentation only 20 days after Aerith's birth. And there they stay for most of Aerith's youth. Trapped in a small room together, where Ifana taught Aerith everything she knew of her Cetra heritage, where Shinra seemed to treat them not well, but not too poorly either. 
When Aerith was seven years old, Ifana saw an opportunity to escape their imprisonment and the inevitable experimentation Aerith would be subjected to, and ran to the slums, finding herself gravely wounded in the Sector 7 slums, where a young woman by the name of Elmira waited daily for her husband to return from the war. In her dying breath, the Setra begs Elmira to look after Aerith and shelter her from Shinra, and the childless and lonely Elmira agrees, taking Aerith to her small cottage in a unique part of the slum outskirts. Here, Aerith would grow, carefree and joyful, accepting of her place in the world and showing compassion to all living things, loved by everyone who encounters her. She has just one memento of her mother, an orb of special white materia, the only one in existence, that she keeps tied up in her hair ribbon with her always. This white materia is incredibly powerful, a gift from the planet alongside its counterpart, the black materia. White materia has the power to protect, summoning holy, which can render the full intensity of the planet to protect the life on it. And the black materia does the opposite, and as such is rejected by the Setra, who sealed it deep away within the temple of the ancients so it could not be used. Aerith knows the materia is important, but she doesn't truly understand the power of it. She cherishes the present and finds joy in the small things, but despite her softness and forgiving nature, she is in fact a tomboy with a strong, independent, stubborn streak, and despite Shinra sucking the planet dry, she manages to cultivate life within her world, somehow encouraging a flower patch inside a Sector 5 slum church and creating a beautiful garden around Elmira's home, through which she sustains a modest living by venturing up to the plate and selling real-life flowers to the passers-by, somewhat of a luxury. She eventually accidentally came upon a man who caught her attention rather dramatically, a soldier who fell through the roof of her church in the slums, and the two dated for a while before he mysteriously disappeared. She never really let his memory go, but, as is in her nature, saw the best in the situation and tried to move on. Shinra, of course, have not forgotten about Aerith, but she's managed to evade their grasp so far, so a special task force contracted by Shinra, known as the Turks, are commanded to check in on her regularly and attempt to kidnap her. These private investigators, namely Reno and Rude, led by Sung, are a sort of mini-intelligence agency and employ lots of the same techniques to finish their mission, and they remain a thorn in the side of Aerith, who's just trying to live her life. There are theories as to why the Turks didn't simply just kidnap Aerith and take her back to Shinra, but in the remake it's said by Elmira that Aerith must go to them of her own accord, otherwise they wouldn't be able to use her. So, we'll assume that however Aerith would be used for her knowledge of the Promised Land, it must be done so with Aerith's own free will. Back to Sephiroth. While Sephiroth did not gain powers of the Setra, his strength and ability was beyond anything any human yet had achieved, propelling him as he grew straight into soldier first class. When Shinra went to war with a western nation called Wutai over their refusal to let Shinra build a Mako reactor on their sacred land, Shinra sent in their forces, and through their decisive victory, Sephiroth cemented himself as a hero of war, inspiring young kids everywhere to join Soldier and be just like him. No one really knew the truth. And Sephiroth truly is a remarkable person, tall and muscular with long, luscious silver hair and good looks. He developed many an admirer in Midgar. He inherited the intelligence of his parents and speaks calmly and gracefully, but his demeanor is cold and aloof, his confidence on the cusp of arrogance. But still, he finds no glory in his popularity and truly cares for the friends he makes within Soldier. Sephiroth does his job, and does it well. Hojo considers him to be his greatest scientific success, but still isn't satisfied. And Sephiroth truly does not understand the circumstances of his birth. This confident, collected, and dare I say normal Sephiroth is unfortunately not the person we get to know as the story unfolds. So as you might imagine, with a giant mega corporation sucking up all the organic life on the planet, there are people who strongly oppose them. 
Their main opposition comes in the form of Avalanche, an eco-terrorist insurgent group who do everything in their power to thwart Shinra's plans and stop their reactors from sucking up Mako. They blow up reactors and share a headquarter in the Sector 7 slums, a bar for the people named Seventh Heaven. It's with Avalanche that our story really begins. Avalanche, namely comprised of the passionate Barrett, a man with a gun for his arm, Jesse, a talented technical expert who builds bombs, a strategist and heartthrob Biggs, Cat Lover Wedge, and the beloved Tifa Lockhart. This is technically the second iteration of Avalanche, with the first iteration being a rather brutal and very different group. But for now, this is who they are. Tifa came from a town called Nibelheim, where a tragic incident saw the death of her father and the destruction of her hometown in a devastating fire. She's a gifted martial artist, and despite appearances, she is in fact quite introverted and shy, choosing to bury her feelings so as not to inconvenience anyone, instead focusing her efforts on busying herself at the bar and helping Avalanche destroy Shinra, who she blames for Nibelheim's destruction. Despite her hatred of Shinra, violence and destruction make her uncomfortable, and inside she's truly conflicted on whether their work is really helping to save the planet or just creating more misery. She encourages those around her to be strong and is an incredibly loyal friend to those she trusts, but like many affected by Shinra's dabbling in the world, she's lonely and really just wants a family connection. Avalanche are gearing up for a big hit. Their insider at Shinra has given them enough information that they're able to infiltrate a reactor and plan to plant a bomb deep inside, incapacitating it and halting the collection of Mako. Inside the Sector 7 slums, an old friend of Tifa's is wandering, seemingly a little confused, is Cloud Strife. His behaviour troubles Tifa, but he insists he's a former soldier first class looking for work, and he agrees to help Avalanche if they can pay him. Cloud's backstory at this point remains a bit of a mystery. Tifa remembered their old conversation years ago when they were just kids, where Tifa lamented that all the boys were leaving Nibelheim to join Soldier, and Cloud promised her that if she was in danger, he'd come and be her hero. The shy tension that bloomed between them back then is reignited as soon as they meet once more, having not seen each other for five years. Cloud is now a muscular, well-trained young man who, with the Mako eyes of a soldier, wielding a hefty sword, and with a real chip on his shoulder. He doesn't care for the past, he doesn't really bother thinking about it, and is only interested in completing the mission and getting paid, which, to Tifa's surprise, she finds quite hurtful. Avalanche and Cloud successfully infiltrate the reactor and set off the bomb, but not without some resistance from intense machines of war without the reactor itself. But the operation goes off successfully, and perhaps too successfully. The bomb goes off and creates an explosion far more powerful than Jesse had intended, causing significant damage and fallout to the top plate and the residents living there. It seems Shinra are watching their every move and manipulated the situation, setting off the reactor's self-destruct, perhaps to form a strong narrative of eco-terrorists trying to destroy the plate, forcing public opinion against them. Which works beautifully, as now the entirety of Midgar is on high alert against these eco-terrorists and the public opinion is firmly in Shinra's favour. How dare these awful vagabonds try and destroy their way of life? Why are they attacking the innocent poor people on the plate? The group split as they escape the ruins of the reactor, each finding their own way back to the train that spirals down to the slums. But as Cloud tries to make his way through Midgar City inconspicuously, sort of difficult when you have a giant sword on your back and you're wearing a traditional soldier uniform, he bumps into a young flower girl who teases him and gives him a free flower, which he accepts somewhat begrudgingly before they're interrupted by Shinra troops, and she runs away, leaving him with the flower and her name, Aerith. The group reconvene at Seventh Heaven, where Cloud reunites with Tifa in an awkward exchange, and we meet Barrett's sweet young daughter Marlene, his only family. Cloud is pretty desperate for money and is very cagey about what he's been up to or how he managed to escape the clutches of Shinra when he was one of their top soldiers. 
But despite his standoffish attitude, Tifa still tries to help him out, looking to keep a close eye on him due to his weird behaviour, and offers him a place to stay in Sector 7, while he continues mercenary work for Avalanche. But Cloud doesn't feel right. Something in his head feels wrong, and he can't figure out what that is, choosing to ignore it instead, and it hasn't gone unnoticed. Despite Cloud's weird behaviour and aloof attitude, which causes significant tension between himself and Barrett, the group continue to work together to work on the bombing of the next reactor, albeit with slightly less powerful explosives this time. But as they access reactor number 5, they're confronted by President Shinra, who informs them of his plans to broadcast their terrorism for the world to see, and then sets an even more powerful machine than the first on them, Somewhere in the slums, there's an informant. They survive the machine and the bombing, just about, but as they escape with grappling guns, Cloud's gun breaks and sends him flying uncontrollably down into the undercity below, whereby what could only be considered divine intervention, he crashes down into the Sector 5 slums church, straight onto Aerith's magical flower patch, leaving him unconscious but unscathed echoing the exact way Aerith met her first love. Cloud and Aerith's meeting seems bound by destiny, and though they are strangers in this moment, the connection they feel between each other is undeniable. Cloud helps Aerith fend off the Turks who've paid her a visit once more, and the ever-carefree, live-in-the-moment Aerith promises Cloud a date in return. So they wander back through the rooftops to Aerith's home in Sector 5, Aerith poking holes in Cloud's walls to try and find out who he really is underneath the standoffish exterior. When they get to the beautiful home shared by Elmira and Aerith, a jewel in the slums, surrounded by flowers and life, they agree it's too late for Cloud to find his way home, and he should stay the night and make the journey in the morning. But when Aerith leaves to make up a guest room, Elmira issues Cloud with a stark warning. She recognises his eyes, the eyes of a Shinra soldier, and asks, without explanation, that he leave their home in the middle of the night without telling Aerith to never return. Cloud has no choice but to agree, and when the house falls silent, he picks up his sword and respects Elmira's wishes. That is, until on his way back through the dark, dangerous slums to Sector 7, he hears a familiar voice, Aerith. And despite his best efforts, Aerith is pretty determined to show him through the slums she's familiar with so he can get home safely, and the two go on their way. Aerith's determination constantly surprises Cloud, who remains an enigma, but their attachment is growing. Meanwhile, Avalanche is still pondering how Shinra seemed to be one step ahead of them at every turn, and they've just found a lead. Deep within the slums of Sector 6 is an area that is effectively a lore unto itself, a vibrant, somewhat seedy place full of life and the kind of love you can buy for the right price. It's the kind of place you can really gain power if you know how to use people in the right ways. And one person who has really taken advantage of that philosophy goes by the name of Don Corneo, a mob boss with a penchant for women and lots of influence. It seems Shinra have twisted Corneo's arm and convinced him to put his men on the trail of Avalanche. So Tifa takes it upon herself to infiltrate Corneo's mansion and find out what he knows. Cloud catches a glimpse of Tifa as she's bundled away to the Corneo mansion, all dressed up to fool him into thinking she's after his Lothario-esque attention, and he decides she needs help. Despite seeing how ferociously handy Tifa is with her fists, Cloud feels it's in his duty to look after her, and Aerith, who's heard the stories of Corneo and his henchmen, opts to accompany him to War Market and be his guide. And this is where we see Cloud, for the first time, do something because he feels it's the right thing to do. He's acting of his own free will, rather than doing something for money or favours. And this little hint of character development is really heartwarming to witness. Of course, trying to help Tifa presents problems all of its own. To access Corneo's mansion where Tifa's being held requires a bit of ingenuity. Only three lucky ladies are allowed to enter, and Corneo gets to choose his favourite. The solution to this is for Cloud to find a beautiful dress and enter the mansion while passing as a woman. 
And as it turns out, Cloud does make for an androgynous beauty, and he and Aerith are able to pass through to find Tifa. The confrontation of Corneo reveals a vital piece of information. The squirmy weasel of a man tells the trio that Shinra are planning to drop the plate over Sector 7 as part of their efforts to stamp out Avalanche. First, they painted the group as eco-terrorists, swaying public opinion against them, and hijacked their bombs to make the reactor explosions more intense, ruining parts of the top plate and convincing the public they were truly in danger. Now their next step is stamping out anyone who could stand in their way, while keeping up good public appearances, was to drop the Sector 7 Midgar plate that held that section of the city, and drop it down on the Sector 7 slums where Avalanche were based, and then blame that on Avalanche too, killing thousands of innocent people in the process. Cloud, Tifa, and Aerith couldn't believe what they were hearing. The injustice and inhumanity coming from Shinra, they know they have to stop it, and they travel as fast as they can back to Sector 7, hoping all the while that it wasn't true, but knowing in their hearts that Shinra would stop at nothing to achieve their goals, whatever they were. And to Tifa and Cloud, Aerith was just an ordinary flower girl. Sure, she knew a little bit of magic and she knew how to fight, but the slums could be rough and you had to learn self-defense, so there's nothing too weird about that. Unfortunately, Shinra were not bluffing, and despite the best efforts of Avalanche, Barrett, Biggs, Jesse, Wedge, Tifa, Cloud, and Aerith, the Turks were too fast and too heavily armed. The plate was dropped. Thousands of lives lost, including that of some of the Avalanche operatives. Seventh Heaven was all but destroyed, and the Sector 7 slums decimated under the weight of the steel plate. Shinra destroyed the lives of innocent Midgar citizens. And for what? The team couldn't believe this could all be to get back at Avalanche. But in the midst of everything, Aerith rushed to save Barrett's daughter Marlene. And in exchange for Marlene's freedom, Aerith was captured by the Turks and taken to Shinra headquarters. While Tifa and Barrett desperately try to come to terms with everything that has happened, Cloud can only think of Aerith. When they visit Elmira, who keeps Marlene safe, they find out the truth of Aerith's heritage. And while most on the planet think of the Ancients as just a story, Elmira knows differently. Aerith is special, and Shinra think she has what they want. The secrets to the Promised Land. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. It goes to that saying that they need to rescue Aerith from Shinra's clutches. And this is where things start getting even more intense. Cloud has been acting strangely still, and Tifa knows it. Shinra hold answers to questions none of them thought to ask, and Shinra's star soldier Sephiroth has been AWOL for five years now. Cloud is pretty certain, though he wouldn't admit it, that he played a large part in Sephiroth's disappearance. As the trio work to gain entry to Shinra HQ, Professor Hojo is up to his old tricks this time using Aerith as a basis with which to create a new, better, more resilient race of Cetra. He plots to use her for breeding purposes, with the intention of crossbreeding her with other races and creatures with despicable methods. It really does get quite dark. And Hojo hasn't exactly been relaxing all this time either. He's been hard at work developing all manner of mutated beasts and creatures all holed up in and around Shinra HQ, Sometimes they even escaped, explaining the weird beasts that were sighted around the slums. Avalanche luckily have a man on the inside of the headquarters, none other than the Midgar Mayor, whose title seems more perfunctory than anything. With his help, the team find and rescue Aerith, and Hojo disappears. But before they can leave, Cloud is confronted by the demons of his past. Well, one of them, anyway. 
Sephiroth, once considered the saviour of Midgar, Shinra's number one fighter, genetically enhanced and more capable than any other out there. He was aloof, but polite, calm, interested in doing a good job, protecting people. But that was five years ago. Sephiroth was presumed dead, and Cloud was implicated, but no one seemed to know why or how. But he wasn't dead. He was very much alive, and he was livid, crazed, with only one thing on his mind. Deep in the depths of Shinra's labs, Genova lay suspended, experimented on non-stop for years and years, impotent and biding its time. Sephiroth had finally found out the truth of his birth, his existence, his deep genetic connection to Genova, and the betrayal was driving him insane. He believed Genova to truly be his mother, and he believes Genova is truly a Cetra. He's seen the failed experiments that resulted from Shinra using his mother's cells, and he knows that he was the only success to come from her experimentation. And he believes the human race betrayed the Cetra 2,000 years ago when they didn't help them fight the Calamity, vowing to destroy all humans in a quest for vengeance. All of this created a very furious, conflicted being of insane strength and capabilities, intent on making humanity and Shinra suffer for what they did to the Cetra and his mother. And as the years passed, the ever-intelligent Sephiroth sat on his knowledge and formulated a plan rife with psychological warfare. This is who Cloud, Tifa, Aerith and Barrett are confronted by at the top of the headquarters, Genova in tow. But Sephiroth isn't interested in sticking around to exchange pleasantries. He's on a mission, flying away and taking Genova with him, leaving Avalanche to decide what to do next in the face of their new reality. Their home destroyed, fresh in the knowledge of a threat to the planet like no other that they feel obligated to fight. And Cloud still doesn't remember quite how he got here. Thus, the journey across the planet begins. Because despite appearances, there's a whole lot more to the planet than just Midgar. They're joined by Red, the four-legged wolf-like creature that Hojo attempted to breed with Aerith back at the headquarters. And as they hunt down Sephiroth to try and uncover his past, they make other new friends like Yuffie, brash and obsessed with materia, and Vincent, a man torn apart emotionally and physically by unethical experimentation. While I won't break down every relationship here, they all have interesting backstories that flesh out the world and give context to some of the more mysterious bits of history hinted at throughout the story. Ultimately, however, the team are trying to stop Sephiroth, and piece by piece, Tifa and Cloud are forced to relive their history together to uncover the truth behind Sephiroth's origins. Their search for the truth takes them across the continents of Gaia, one step behind Sephiroth at every turn. When they close in, they're faced with fighting fragments of Genova, horrifying, mutated beings that hold only a small portion of Genova's true strength that test the limits of their fighting capabilities. They visit villages, towns, ports, unraveling a strange but compelling mystery and learning more about themselves in the process. Cloud reveals to the group that he does have an association with Sephiroth, but it's muddled hazy, bits missing, and he's unsure of himself. Still, he tells the group his story to explain what happened to his hometown Nibelheim and his mother. So years ago, Tifa and Cloud both lived in Nibelheim. They were kids, they grew up around each other in the same friendship groups, they were fond of each other in that awkward childhood friends way that has the potential to turn into something more, depending on life's plans. Tifa lived with her father, Cloud lived with his own mother, and they were neighbours, until Cloud decided, like many of the boys in the town, to leave home and join Shinra's elite fighting division. Cloud wanted to be like his hero, Sephiroth. He wanted to be a soldier first class, and he wanted to impress Tifa. He promised her he would be there for her if she ever found herself in trouble. The next time Tifa and Cloud meet, 16-year-old Cloud was travelling through Nibelheim with Sephiroth, and a couple of Shinra infantrymen to check on a damaged Mako reactor nearby. Tifa acts as their guide to the reactor. When they arrived, they're faced with chamber upon chamber of failed and successful human Genova experiments, and Genova herself. 
ever intelligent, Sephiroth puts two and two together and begins to suspect the truth of his past. He thought his mother, Genova, was a woman who died during childbirth and prefers not to think of his father, Hojo, at all. This creature, encased in the damaged Mako reactor that held the same name as his mother, combined with the fact his abilities are incredibly more powerful than any other soldier, leads Sephiroth to conclude that Genova must be his mother and that he must be the result of a freak science experimentation. He returns to Nibelheim and takes shelter in the Shinra Manor on the outskirts, a place once known for the research done there by Shinra scientists. And when he comes back out, he is not the same man he once was. Instead, driven by insanity, induced by the realization of his origins, confirmed through his research in the manor. He thinks Genova is his mother, that she is a Cetra, and that humanity is a curse upon the world, betrayers to the Cetra, who he must seek vengeance for. He tells Cloud all of this down in the mansion basement and leaves the manor. By the time Cloud has pursued, Nibelheim is burning, the townspeople murdered, including Cloud's mother. Sephiroth returns to the reactor to free Genova with Cloud in pursuit, and inside the reactor, Cloud finds Tifa crouched over the body of her father, another of the now enraged Sephiroth's victims. They both confront him in Genova's chamber, and Tifa suffers a nearly fatal blow. Sephiroth believes he is the chosen one, and Cloud knows he has to stop him. And that's all Cloud can remember. The records say he died, but there's a hole in Cloud's memory that he can't reconcile, no matter how hard he tries. And that's all they know of the situation, up until this point. For the past few years, Sephiroth was presumed dead, but suddenly he's back, calm, collected, but still just as insane as all those years before. Clearly, there was still plenty to unravel. But they know one thing for sure. Nibelheim, their childhood home, was destroyed, and all their loved ones along with it. The group continue their journey through Chocobo farms and forts and areas Sephiroth recently passed through, ending up in Costa del Sol, where they find Hojo sunbathing nonchalantly. When confronted, Hojo asks Cloud if he will be attending the reunion, Cloud has no idea what he means. After that, they find themselves in the hometown of Barrett, North Coral, and the residents are not happy about his return. Barrett did not leave this place happily. He had advocated for Shinra to build a Maka reactor in their town, to the disagreement of other townspeople, and even his best friend Dine. The reactor would be built despite objections, and the town even began to prosper as a result until disaster struck, and the reactor exploded. Shinra blamed the town, who had so strongly resisted the reactor's building for the explosion, and sent their army to burn their home to the ground. Barrett and his best friend Dine are caught in the siege, Dine falling off a precipice before Barrett grabs him by the arm, desperately clinging on, but the soldiers are on the attack, getting closer and closer, shooting the cliff, until Barrett's forearm is destroyed. Barrett loses his arm, and his best friend falls into the abyss, presumed dead. The remaining town folk blame Barrett for everything. A little unfairly, but they've just lost everything, so they aren't exactly thinking rationally. With nothing left for him here, Barrett takes Dine's surviving daughter, Marlene, and takes up a new life in the slums of Midgar, vowing to destroy Shinra no matter the cost. And that's Barrett. Marlene is not in fact his blood relative, but the adopted daughter of his deceased best friend, Barrett carrying his rage and guilt around for the rest of his life, explaining his passion and dedication to stopping the Mako abuse and Shinra as a whole. And he now has a gun arm. The town of North Corral now operates as a prison, controlled by a mysterious and fearsome man. When the crew pass through North Corral and end up in a magical huge arcade known as the Gold Saucer, they gain valuable intel about a mysterious orb of black materia that sounds rather key to their quest at large. But they're besieged by small problems, namely being blamed for a massacre that occurs in one of the many squares, a massacre carried out by a man with a gun for an arm. 
Cloud's party is thrown into the prison with Barrett as suspect number one, and their only way out is by winning a chocobo race. It's a strange system, but it works for them. First, they need to put on their mystery hats and figure out who committed the mass murders in the gold saucer that they have been blamed for. The answer comes in the form of the mysterious man who has the prison under his thumb. That man being Dine, who somehow survived his fall all those years before and has a gun arm of his own. In an extra dark turn of events, the team are forced to fight Dine, who finds out Marlene is still alive, and realising in his insanity that even though his daughter is still alive, he can never be in her life after what he's been through. He takes his own life. With the emotional whiplash that seems to be sort of common in this game, the team immediately go to take part in this ridiculous chocobo race to buy their freedom. Once freed, they head to the town of Gongaga, where they meet two people who tell them of their son and ask if the crew had seen him. That son was a soldier first class called Zack Fair, and both Tifa and Aerith seem to become upset when they hear his name. Cloud discovers Zack was the former boyfriend Aerith mentioned all that time ago, but Tifa's connection remains a mystery. His own parents don't seem to know where he went. The next stop on their journey is Cosmo Canyon, a place that holds much significance for Red 13, the talking wolf-like creature in their party who was freed from Shinra's labs in Midgar. Having been cagey about his origins up until now, it's revealed that this was in fact his home, and he leaves the party to reunite with his remaining family, his grandfather, Bugenhagen. Bugenhagen is a scientist with great knowledge of the planet and her spirit energy, and through him, Aerith finds out more about her heritage as an ancient. Red finds out the truth of his history and makes peace with his family, deciding to continue travelling with the crew to complete their mission of stopping Sephiroth. So they look onwards to find the next piece of the puzzle, deciding to see what's left of Nibelheim. When they finally arrive to the town Tifa and Cloud once knew as home, they're shocked to find the entire town fully rebuilt, an exact replica of how they remembered it from six years ago, complete with imposters masquerading as the villagers that perished in the fire and the town littered in what seemed to be broken clones of Sephiroth, mulling about, that harmless but quite creepy. Sephiroth appears to Cloud when they enter the mansion, urging him to meet across the mountains in the Grand Reunion, but Cloud still has no idea what that even means. They discover that they really need to gain access to the place known as the Temple of the Ancients, because that's Sephiroth's goal. The temple holds the mysterious black materia, and while they don't know what the materia does, they do know they need to stop Sephiroth getting it no matter what. The temple is adorned with words from the ancients and images, a warning of the power of the black materia, and as they get closer to the center, Sephiroth appears once more to do the bad guy thing of telling them his secret evil plan. Materia can be used for a variety of things, to summon elemental magic, to heal, to cure, and even to summon powerful beings to protect and attack. But the black materia is different. This materia is truly a force for destruction. It's existed for over 2,000 years and has just one purpose. To summon a huge, terrifying meteor to destroy the entire planet. But Sephiroth doesn't simply want to destroy the planet, no no, that would be far too easy. He wants to use the planet's natural defences against it. He wants the meteor to hugely damage the planet, forcing it to rush the lifestream to the source of the damage, creating an abundance of lifestream energy that he would then absorb, giving him even more power, and in his view, ascending him to godhood. Well, they successfully retrieve the materia ahead of Sephiroth, but Cloud's head still isn't right, and suddenly he is no longer under control of his own actions. He desperately wants to keep the materia away from the one who would use it to summon the meteor, but he loses control, handing over the materia to Sephiroth and attacking his own friends before they manage to subdue him by knocking him out. He remains unconscious while Sephiroth escapes, and while he sleeps, he dreams. He dreams of Aerith, who tells him that she knows only she can stop Sephiroth. She knows 
and she's accepted her fate, and she'll be leaving to the Forgotten City to fulfill her destiny. When Cloud awakens, Aerith is missing, and he realizes it was not just a dream. They race to the Forgotten City to help Aerith. They find her, knelt, praying at the altar underground, serene and at peace, alone. They approach, and suddenly Cloud's mind is no longer his own once again. He's overcome with the irresistible urge to draw his sword and attack Aerith, and once more his friends intervene, stopping him just before he does the unthinkable. And as his mind returns, a figure descends from above, clad in black leather with long white hair, Sephiroth carefully and deliberately impales Aerith with his Masamune sword before disappearing. It's one of the most devastating moments in gaming history. It happens so deliberately and yet so suddenly, and there's not much time to grieve because Sephiroth is still at large and time is of the essence. Still, they lay her body in the lake, allowing her to return to the livestream and the planet she so cared for. What began as small moments of weakness and uncertainty have devolved into Sephiroth fully gaining control over Cloud's mind for moments at a time, and Aerith's death further destabilized Cloud, his inexplicable connection to her leaving him heartbroken and confused. They have to continue on. Despite how demoralizing and devastating her death was, she was so at peace when it happened almost as if she accepted this inevitability and knew that her death would be essential, even if it didn't feel that way to the team. They know they'll find Sephiroth awaiting them at the site of his reunion and have no choice but to chase him there, all the way up to the North Crater, the site of the original crash landing of Genova, rich with the life stream that seeks to heal the planet. Shinra are also hot on the trail of Sephiroth, and when they all converge deep in the crater, Cloud learns part of the devastating truth to the gap in his memory. This reunion that Sephiroth was so obsessed with, Hojo tells Cloud, was in fact a reunion of Genova's cells, all the cells that had been taken from its body, seeking to come together and be reunited once more, returning her to her former strength. Hojo leads Cloud to believe there are Genova cells inside his body, seeking to reunite with Sephiroth, explaining his drive to be closer and find him, and Hojo goes as far to imply that Cloud's whole life is a lie, that his name, his memories, everything he thought he knew about himself belonged to someone else. It all seems so horrifically plausible. Cloud's mind can't even begin to comprehend that his entire life might actually be a lie, and this becomes the final straw for his already fragile psyche. His morale is broken, and his mind is lost, fully pliable by Sephiroth, who uses him to regain control over the Black Materia once more and summon Meteor. It's also worth noting that up until this point, the Sephiroth we've seen around Gaia wasn't actually Sephiroth at all, but an avatar, Genova's body made in Sephiroth's image, with his true body lying in store at this crater, which he now inhabits once more from this point onwards. Meteor is summoned. The countdown to the planet's destruction begins. The crater begins to shake, while everyone scrambles to escape, the broken cloud strife falls helplessly down into the livestream. One week later, the scene is bleak. In an act of self-defense, the planet has created various weapons to attack against mortal threats. These weapons don't really discriminate either, they will attack what seems to be bad for the planet. It's theorized that the weapons consider humanity a threat equal to what humanity is currently fighting against. And with Shinra's acts against Mako and the livestream, it's safe to say humanity on the whole were not the good guys in this story. But these weapons rose from the earth to protect it. And now Avalanche and Shinra have two times the problems to deal with. A week after they've left the crater, Cloud washes up on the shores of a hot spring town named Medil an area where the life stream flows close to the surface. That amount of exposure to Mako is dangerous, deadly even to anyone, causing Mako poisoning, affecting the mind. 
heavy exposure to the very souls of the beings of the planet, their memories, their sensations, experiences, everything that makes life, life, can break a person's mind. Cloud's mind was already pretty far gone, but the doctors of Medeal care for him in a vegetative state, and later, incoherent state, and Tifa finds him there. Before they can really help, Medeal is shook by strong earthquakes. The town begins to break apart, and Tifa and Cloud both are flung once more into the depths of the life stream, but ending up this time in the depths of Cloud's subconscious. Here's where things become a bit clearer. Tifa meets the true Cloud, buried deep in his own subconscious. The young friend she once knew before he headed off to join Soldier. They're forced to confront their true feelings while uncovering the truth of his past, and it's not a pretty story, but it's not quite the story Hojo tried to spin either. This is the truth of Cloud's past. When Tifa and Cloud were both nine years old, living in Nibelheim, Cloud lost his father when he was young, and he wasn't a popular child growing up. He internalized his lack of friends and eventually decided he must just be better than the other kids and he didn't need them. But he still liked his neighbor Tifa, and they just weren't the close friends he thought they were. Tifa's mother died suddenly, and the young Tifa mistakenly thought she'd be able to see her mother again if she took the dangerous pathway across a mountain canyon. Cloud followed her and tried to convince her to stop when all her friends left her, and when the two were alone together, Tifa made a misstep. Cloud tried to catch her, but they both ended up falling from quite a height, gravely wounding Tifa, while Cloud managed to escape, relatively unscathed. Cloud was blamed for everything. Tifa wasn't allowed to talk to him, and Cloud became angry and resentful, misunderstood and lonely. He still desperately wanted to impress Tifa, and when he decided to join Soldier, he asked her to meet him atop a water tower to tell her, promising to save her if she ever found herself in trouble. This was one of the only true memories of their past that the two shared. But Cloud never made it to Soldier. Despite his best efforts, he was rejected, instead becoming a mere Shinra infantryman, leaving him embarrassed and dejected. He doesn't bother writing home, not wanting to tell everyone of his failure, but despite everything, Cloud wasn't a bad fighter at all, and it still shows strong proficiency. Aged 16, Cloud is assigned to protection detail. He's to accompany two soldier first class to Nibelheim to investigate a faulty reactor. But of course, he doesn't dare show his identity and let the townspeople see how much of a failure he really was. He wears his helmet, and no one is any the wiser. Sephiroth goes to the reactor, much like Cloud remembered, but it wasn't Cloud accompanying him or confronting him. It was Zack Fair. Sephiroth sets Nibelheim aflame, and Cloud, seeing his childhood home burning, rushes to the reactor, finding a gravely wounded Tifa and an almost dead Zack, whose buster sword he takes, and catching Sephiroth off guard, manages to strike a blow. Sephiroth impales Cloud, but all the rage and embarrassment and desperation mounts inside Cloud, and he manages to push through his pain and hurl Sephiroth into the Mako pit below them, and then collapses unconscious. Cloud, Zack, and Tifa survive. Tifa is taken back to what remained of the village and eventually makes her way to Midgar, distrusting her own memory. Unfortunately, Shinra find Cloud and Zack, who are taken to the Shinra mansion and subjected to awful experimentations at the hands of Hojo. Both were infected with the alien cells of Genova and exposed to Mako. Zack had already been exposed to the Mako as part of his soldier initiation and didn't seem to be affected, but Cloud developed Mako poisoning, weakening his mind. Hojo desperately tried to turn Zack and Cloud into Sephiroth clones using Genova's cells, but considered his attempts a failure, and both were left cryogenically sleeping in Shinra's mansion for years. Through force of will, Zack manages to free himself into the now-empty mansion, 
Cloud is not all there, but Zack frees him and both of them escape, running from Shinra for a long while, the enigmatic and kind Zack caring for Cloud all the while, telling him his thoughts, his memories, secrets, while Cloud quietly absorbed all that Zack told him. Eventually, they reach Midgar, but Shinra aren't far behind. Zack is forced to fight against the overwhelming numbers of Shinra troops alone, but it's too much. Zack falls under their gunfire, and they ignore Cloud, assuming him to be dead already. The trauma brings some of Cloud's mind back to himself, and the dying Zack entrusts his buster sword and his legacy to Cloud, who slowly continues on to Midgar. Zack's death profoundly affected his mind, and Cloud rebuilt who he thought he was based off everything inside his own mind. But most of what was inside his mind was the memories and stories of Zack Fair. So there's the truth. Cloud was never a soldier. His memories did not belong to him. They were an amalgamation of memories he'd taken from people he admired, even so far as the memories of how he himself behaved, and he created who he thought he was out of these fragments to cope with the trauma, believing so deeply in the sense of self he created that he refused to see through the gaps. Arguably, the connection between Cloud and Aerith was due to her love of Zack Fair, and Cloud, having used much of Zack's memories and mannerisms to form his new self, reminded her so strongly of him that it created an innate, unexplainable bond. This is what Tifa and Cloud discovered deep within Cloud's subconscious. Tifa, a kind, healing soul, encourages Cloud to believe in who he really is, in who he's become, to find himself once more, and piece by piece they manage to restore Cloud's mind. When they resurface from the livestream, Cloud is subtly different. The years of anger and resentment twisted and tangled inside him are being undone, but they're replaced by grief and rage at his inability to save Zack or Aerith. For now, pressing matters await. Midgar is under siege by the diamond planetary defense weapon, presumably because of the macro reactors. Sephiroth has a protective energy barrier around the north crater where he's still residing, and the meteor is descending. Shinra used their Mako cannon, named the Sister Ray, to destroy the barrier at the North Crater, and the weapon in the process. Hojo wants to relaunch the Sister Ray, but doing so would destroy Midgar, so Avalanche prioritized dealing with him. Running out of subjects to experiment on, Hojo had actually turned to injecting himself with Genova cells, and Cloud and the gang were forced to defeat the mutated version of himself that he'd become, learning at the same time that he was Sephiroth's real father. Finally, Sephiroth awaits. In an epic battle, Cloud and his party of Tifa, Barrett, Yuffie, Vincent, Sid, and Katsith must face the full wrath of Genova in all her mutated terribleness, a feat the powerful Setra themselves had struggled with. And when they succeeded, they had to contend with the full fury of an empowered Sephiroth, godlike and supremely dangerous. Cloud pulls every single ounce of his strength together to deal the final blow in an incredible showdown, but the defeat of his physical form was not enough, and Cloud had to enter the livestream once more, mentally, to defeat Sephiroth's very mind, lest it taint the livestream. And finally, as the meteor descends, the truth of Aerith's intentions become apparent. The counterpart to the Black Materia, the White Materia, holy had been passed down through the Setra, finally arriving through Aerith's mother and to Aerith when she passed away in front of the Sector 5 slum train station years ago. The Holy was the only thing that could truly counteract the might of the meteor, and as Cloud surfaced on the flying ship Highwind from defeating Sephiroth, the meteor and the power of the Lifestream surfacing and wrapping around the planet connected, driving the meteor back and finally destroying it. And that was the end of Final Fantasy VII. In the film Advent Children, we see an imagining of the future where Mako is no longer used as an energy source, a world attempting to rebuild itself, but the fragmental effects of Genova and Sephiroth are still felt keenly. 
There are spin-off games, comics, bugs, and more that all flesh out the story vastly, and things happen a little differently in the recent remake, so it will be interesting to see if the core story of the original game holds true, or if there'll be changes made over 23 years after the original's release. I'm sorry if I skimmed over your favourite parts or characters, I'd have loved to go into more detail on people like Vincent and Yuffie, and I especially left out Cat Sith, because trying to explain an animatronic puppet controlled by a Shinra employee who was set out to spy on Cloud and Co, but ended up joining their crew and almost becoming somewhat sentient, is it's a little bit far-fetched. <laughs> That was a joke, because the story is, of course, incredibly fantastical. And honestly, when I started it, I had no idea the twists and turns I was letting myself in for. And once again, sorry if I got anything wrong or rushed over any important bits, but hopefully you got the gist of the story enough to pique your interest and give you an understanding of the basics if you ever get into a conversation about this iconic game and its characters. Thank you for listening to Explorers Guild. Feel free to leave us a follow on Twitter at ExplorersCast. We're at the end of season one here, but I'll be back soon with season two. So let me know if you have any feedback on this season. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.